I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddow, and wherever you're listening from, it's great to have you with us. I hope you've enjoyed the latest series. And if you're new to Book Off, well, all our episodes are available to listen to for free whenever you want. And some of the brilliant guests who have joined us just on Series 9 include Monica Alley, Marion Keyes, David Baldacci, Charlotte Mendelssohn, Ardalo Hanlon, Liz Hyder, Jarvis Cocker, Nina Stibby, Carrie Hope Fletcher, and the Reverend Richard Coles, to name but a you and for our last episode our very last episode of this series i'm joined by two more fabulous humans and writers and my first guest started writing when he was 10 he was a singer a painter and decorator i don't think together before he started writing for tv where he went on to create the hugely successful comedy series the far show hello ted he is the author of the best-selling young bond books and the very successful horror series the enemy and he's here to tell us about his new adult crime novel whatever gets you through the night it's Charlie Hickson. Hello. Hello there. Lovely to see you. And my sober this time, that's me, not you. Uh, and my second guest is a screenwriter and author who, after writing a couple of successful film scripts, moved back to the UK to study psychotherapy. Before giving up writing for good, he gave it one last go, penning a detective novel called The Silent Patient, which went on to become an international bestseller. Here to tell us about his second novel, the Maidens, it's Alec Michaelides. Hello. Hello, hiya. Lovely to have you both here in person, in the studio. And I know we've sort of met off mic, but Charlie, Alex, Alex, Charlie. Hello. Introductions are Hello. done. Marvellous. And for the next uh, 40 minutes or so, we're going to talk about your books, your writing, your inspirations. You're going to get give us some book recommendations. And we're going to do the book off as well, of course, uh, towards the end of the podcast. But let's talk uh, firstly about The Maidens, if I may, Alex. Um now, I've read quite a bit over the last couple of weeks of you talking about this book, and you fell in love with classic thrillers when you were living in Greece when you were younger, didn't you? And that is sort of a bit of a spark for this book. Yeah, very much so. You know, I think partly it was because I wrote it during lockdown. And so I think I was feeling a little bit nostalgic for, I don't know, for the past um, <laughs> when I was kind of locked in my flat. And I, um, I, you know, I grew up in Cyprus and I suppose what made me into a, a reader and a writer was discovering Agatha Christie at the age of 13 and then just devouring um, all of her novels um, on the beach in Cyprus. And it was it was kind of the happiest reading experience I ever had. And so, you know, before I gave up writing, I thought I want to try and just try a detective story because I've always wanted to. And it kind of went from there. And then with The Maidens, it was very much like a, 
a very conscious attempt to try and write a kind of homage to that kind of classic detective story. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote it as a fan, I suppose, of the genre, really. Yeah, which is a good way to approach a book, really, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose come come as a fan. Um, and Charlie, you've you've been writing for years and years and years, but it's not since the late nineties that there was an adult fiction book from you. Early nineties. Gosh, yeah. I wrote four adult crime books in the early nineties, um, and I remember I was desperately trying to finish the fourth one, uh, just before my second son was born and just before we were going to do the first series of the fast show so i needed to get it out the way and then i haven't had time since (laughs) to follow it up (laughs) yeah but no i was interested because i the crime book i wrote was that's just out i also wrote in in lockdown lockdown where is yours set it's set in cambridge Oh, right. Yeah. It was mine set in Corfu. <laughs> so, <laughs> so were you in Cyprus dreaming of Cambridge while I was well, in I was, I was London actually, dreaming of Corfu? Yeah, I was in London actually too, but oh, not right. at that time. But yes, it's funny, none of us wanted to be where we actually were, no. I think. Yeah. And, but, and did it have an effect on the writing, not just the setting, but writing it in that weird sort of isolation we were all in? Did that actually affect the plot in any way or the way that you wrote these books? Well, I, you know, I found, like a lot of people, very hard to concentrate at the beginning of lockdown. Couldn't read much, couldn't do any serious writing. I did lots of bits and pieces. Mm. But then as it went on and summer hit and then, the, then we went sort of towards the second lockdown, I, I felt a sort of great pressure building up inside of me. That I wanted to do something and do something a bit more, bit bigger. Mm. So it kind of came splurging out for me. And was it, was it, in my case, it's very much about, you know, trying to conjure up that place, very much like an effort of, you know, being somewhere else, somewhere kind of... Well, it was, but, I mean, particularly for me, because Corfu you know, was one of the places I always used to go on holiday as a teenager and then when the kids were small, and, you know, I couldn't get there. And I'd always wanted to write something set there, and it just, it just felt right to, to put myself there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I relate to that. With me, The Maidens, it was about... I guess I've always wanted to write about Cambridge since I was a student there. And because um, I just, I've always loved it. It's such a beautiful, atmospheric, mysterious place. And I just thought, you know, I'm always trying to rip off Agatha Christie wherever possible. <laughs> and, um, and I figured that she'd never done uh, a book set in, a, in Oxbridge College. Um, I think because she wasn't, she didn't go to university. So I thought maybe she didn't feel she had the life experience mm-hmm. or whatever. So I thought, well, she's not done that. So I'll try and do that. But, it, you know. Is it is it a, a period piece? Is it in the it's, it's, no, it's not, Christie but it's, era? It's not, but it's very much through that kind of sensibility, I suppose. I tried Cambridge to, kind of is it's kind pretty of, timeless. Yes, it? it is. Exactly. <laughs> it's pretty timeless. And I, and I've just I've read and reread her book so many times. I just sort of tried to just imagine what if she'd had my life experience, what kind of novel she might write if she mm. set it there. Well, why don't you just set up the story of the Maidens for us then? Because obviously there's there's quite a bit of you in it. I think. Yeah, I suppose so. It's the same sort of themes that preoccupy me, um, yeah. which are always you know the same. <laughs> so it's sort of it's like Greek mythology, Greek tragedy, um, psychology, and murder. Is the kind of a mix that works. Big, the big four. Yeah, yeah. Call it, yeah. Um, so can I just get straight? You're not a murderer. Then. No, no. <laughs> when he says there's a lot of you in it, deeply preoccupied. In it. Well, frustrated murderer, a bit like that. Um, yeah. I think all writers are. <laughs> it's a. Um, uh, it's about a. Um, uh, a mysterious and charismatic Greek tragedy professor at Cambridge University at a fictional college who is suspected of murdering um, his students who are all members of a secret society known as the Maidens. And the heroine is a grieving group psychotherapist who becomes obsessed with proving his guilt. 
and so it's kind of a story of obsession and you know and a detective story and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's brilliant. I really loved it. Oh, thank um, you. And thank it you. was such a page turner. I want to come back and talk a little bit more about those characters in a moment. But um, Charlie, perhaps you can set up your story for us as well and tell us about McIntyre and, and this whole thing that's happening in Corfu. Uh, yeah, well, uh, my story is about a guy who in this book calls himself McIntyre. He's quite sort of undercover. Uh, and he has been hired by a father of a young girl to go to Corfu to kind of free her from the clutches of essentially a, a paedophile. He's a young tech uh, tech millionaire guy who um, has set up his own uh, tennis club, a tennis team of young girls who he trains and teaches. But basically, he's just essentially running a private sex cult in his big mansion on Corfu. And McIntyre has to go in there with a very small team and and get the girl out. And because you obviously write a lot of uh, YA fiction, mm. you must have ideas all the time which either fall in that category or don't. This obviously falls way out of a YA novel. So was it... Was it the idea that then drew you back to wanting to write adult fiction or did you just think, I want to write adult fiction, so I'll come up with an idea? Well, I'd always wanted to carry on writing adult crime yeah. fiction. Uh, it was interesting. When I wrote the first four books in the early 90s, crime was not a big thing. In fact, my publishers said, oh, you can't publish these as crime books. <laughs> They'll just be, you know, that's a sort of grubby backwater. We'll, and I said, but, yeah, but these are crime books. I love crime books. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to write. I said, no, 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 no. Uh, we will make them proper books. So <laughs> they weren't marketed as well as they could have been. And pretty much as soon as I quit writing crime, crime exploded. It became <laughs> the biggest thing on the planet and still is. It's funny, as I remember doing the very first event I did for my first book in 1991. Uh, Peter James was one of the other writers. And, and my book was sort of, I think it was on the back of things like Silence of the Lambs. It was sort of pushed into almost horror territory, right? Okay. which was still a bit cool at the time. And Peter James at the time was a big name in horror. Um, and we did an event together. And then fairly soon after that, he got out of horror as quick as he quick could because it just disappeared. And, and and he's now, you know, a massively successful crime author. So I'd always wanted to go back and, you know, I got so sidetracked doing TV and then doing the young James Bond books yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah. and the other books. And it was interesting you talking about where your ideas are coming from or focus. I find you have a sort of antenna and it's tuned in on whatever you're doing at the time. Mm. So when I was doing a lot of comedy, I was always trying to think of funny ideas, ideas for sketches, funny characters. And then, you know, doing the young James Bond is trying to think of, of stories and devices that would work in that world. And then horror, and then you know, I, I I sort of had to retune my adult thing, and it was it was fun, and it was a release to go back and be able to write about some of the stuff I wasn't able to write about yeah. writing for young young people. I mean, it's you know, essentially writing a novel for a teenager, a kid, or an adult is the same. You do the same thing, but the certain subject matter that you need to steer clear of. Well, well, quite mm. um, sex cults and things like that. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> those kind of things exactly. But it, despite the themes though charlie you you do put the humor in this book still so that like the, your comic angle is still there but you it must be quite hard to find the balance do you think or not? well i put I, you know I, I put humor in whatever i'm writing because i think that's how the world works it's right. humor in everything we do and even in the worst situations in the real world people are still finding humor and laughter yeah sometimes it's black humor sometimes it's just yeah. using humor as a release 
and you know, I think any kind of writing, you know, book, TV, film, if it there's no humour in it, you just think, well, this is yeah, <laughs> this isn't this isn't very realistic. Yeah, you know, they would surely laugh if that happened in real life. Yeah, in real life, <laughs> surely at some point there'd be a little joke. But yeah, I mean, I've I, I've 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 I, I like black humour, mm. and you know, I'm a big fan of a lot of the. Um, Pulp fiction, American pulp fiction writers of the 40s, 50s, 60s, particularly Jim Thompson, who was brilliant at using very, very dark, twisted humour in his books. And it makes it makes the nastiness that much more nasty when, mm -hmm. you know, if the if the if the psychopath is cracking jokes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. And um, wife, well, I, I love this book too, Charlie and I found it. Uh, equally um page turnery and humorous as i was going through it um and i do want to come back and, and talk a little bit more about it in a moment um alex I, I said i wanted to talk about your characters a little bit more and i wondered because you'd had that cambridge experience of going to the university there because maybe it wasn't the greatest and i i, I wondered how much of the characters are based on the people in your life from that time um, they're not really actually. No, okay. I think I think Marianne's probably based on me, the heroine, on the um, the, the villain, kind of Edward Fosker, the yeah. the um, the, the, um, the Greek tragedy professor. He's he's actually based on when I was uh, training um, as a group therapist, which I ultimately abandoned that training because largely because I encountered this group therapist who was quite toxic and quite mad, and I just stored him in the back of my head for ten years, and then ended up putting him into a, a book in a different form. But I guess that's what you do with people, isn't it? Well, you, you do. Know? I mean, yeah, you know, as a writer. And people, you know, people occasionally say of some of my books, they say, well, you seem like such a nice person. Well, you do these horrible things in your books. You say, well, that's exactly it. I can put them all in the book so I don't have to kind of do it <laughs> yeah. in real life. Yeah. It's like yeah. a sort of portrait of Dorian Gray in some ways, isn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. So, so this guy that you based it on, would you say was a kind of, near the top level of psychopath scale. I'd say he was, you know, it was very, it was a really weird um, situation to kind of be in this training group with him where I'd had, you know, a lot of experience of um, individual therapy for many years and I'd worked in a psychiatric unit and studied it and had been experienced very supportive, helpful therapy. And yet this man seemed to be, you know, determined to like pick on really vulnerable, damaged people in the group and make them cry. And just, it was felt very sadistic. Mm. And also it felt that there was, there's something that happens in groups, I think, where people end up progressing to becoming quite young parts of themselves and making the group into their family and the group leader into, the, into their father mm. and you just have to look at you know um, politics and, and history to see mm. what happens when large groups of people place their trust in a complete psychopath well, well that's kind of what's at the core of my book with the, the, this cult essentially a cult leader absolutely does yeah. exactly that of, yeah. of creating a group playing them off against each other manipulating them emotionally yes yeah and it took for me honestly because i i'd i was a you know a kind of person who just put all of my faith and trust in teachers it was a real um, thing for me to actually get up and walk out and not just leave the group, but also leave the training. Um, and I, it was, it was a moment when I finally grew up, I think. And I just thought it doesn't matter how many letters you have after your name or how learned you are. If you don't know anything about kindness and humility, you've got nothing to teach me. And it was a big step for me. So it was, it was in the end, it was a traumatic, but useful experience. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you have to be careful what you say in case people work out who this guy is? Uh, yeah, I wonder, <laughs> sometimes I do wonder about that. Um, but we'll see, we'll see, you know, if I get sued, I'll, I'll come back. <laughs> And the, the silent patient took a long old time to write because obviously, well, initially you didn't even think of it as a book and it went through various iterations, you know, before mm -hmm. it became this phenomenal bestseller. Was The Maidens a, a, a sort of, dip, obviously a different journey because you've published a book and it was very successful and then it's like, right, let, let's write the other one. 
Or had you already thought of the Maidens pre the Silent Maidens? No, I hadn't. You know, and it's true, the tricky second novel, second album syndrome, it's really true. And that thing that Stephen Fry said about, you know, you've got 36 years or 40 years to write your first book and six months to write your second one is is really (laughs) true. true, And I I learned so much from writing the Maidens, mainly just the the fact that I got through the experience of writing a second novel. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but it's it's a real... It was a long time ago for me. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm up to about 22 oh my gosh so, wow uh, okay uh, yeah um <laughs> no i mean there was definitely yeah i mean definitely that experience where you put all your life experiences that are usable into your first one and then it's like oh no no now what um and looking back on it and it was quite interesting one of the things i did in lockdown one of the jobs you were able to do was recording um audio books and i did the audio books of my first four Novels, oh, uh-huh. which I hadn't read for uh, uh, over twenty years. Yeah, I was very pleasantly surprised. Actually, I was well prepared to be sitting there thinking, "Oh my god, this is awful." <laughs> but now I got quite involved in them. But it, it was quite weird looking back at what I wrote for my second book because it it was I don't really know where it came from. Uh, did it, did it, you recognise yourself in it? Did you feel that you someone else wrote well, it? Well, no, it was interesting because it did you know it did reawaken memories of, of 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 where I was at when I was writing and that kind of thing. But I can't really think of what the impulse particularly was to write the second one, and it wasn't. It didn't. It doesn't feel like a logical progression from mm-hmm. the first one. Mm. Well, I, I love that you went back and did those because I imagine at the t- obviously in the, at the time they'd never been. Audio. No, they weren't a thing at the time. No. You know, who, who the hell would listen to an audio book? No, we were all lis- listening to, you know, Ian Home punk on Radio rock. 4, weren't we? Oh, sorry, no, <laughs> punk rock, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, you're right, Ian Home. <laughs> yeah, well, that was the, the slight dead hand of Radio 4 uh, afternoon dramas and, and readings from Book of the Week. Exactly. Uh, that's what I remember as sort of, other than actually, I listened to, to books on cassette as a kid. Mm. Um, but then it was just Radio 4 drama, and that was it. That was sort of the audiobook world mm. of the 90s that I remember. So that's brilliant that you went and did that. And probably, well, I'm glad you found it a good experience because I know many authors would go back and just... You know, no, I was just thinking, it. I can't think of anything worse, actually. <laughs> that, but, yeah, that's very brave of you. <laughs> a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. 
in uh, screenwriting terms, Alex, which is obviously where you sort of started your writing career, you you don't. It's dialogue, dialogue, really, isn't it? And you don't really get into the heads of characters. They just have to tell you what they're what they're thinking, I suppose, through dialogue. So, when you made that change and when you finally did see the Silent Patient as a novel, mm-hmm. was that? Was that a sort of nice realisation in a way that yeah. you could put all that in? Well, it was lovely because I just found I was better at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was nice of you to say they were successful films. They weren't really. I, I had I wrote three films and each one was worse than the last. And I just think that that's partly inherent in the nature of making films is that everything that can go wrong usually does go wrong. But also just the fact that I wasn't a dramatist. And I, I realise that now because the moment I was able to go inside a character's head and just write my first book mainly through the, the voice of Theo, it was just like a light bulb going off. Mm. I was like, oh, I can do this. I know how to do this. But I, but, it, but staging a scene is still very difficult for me, I think. Right, so th- yeah. there's no plans to go back to screenwriting? I don't think it would have me, to be honest right. with you. <laughs> <laughs> Even if I knocked on the <laughs> yeah. door, they wouldn't open. Um, but you have you just finished something for TV, Charlie? Or are you I'm in the something? middle of doing a big a big uh, TV series that I'm sort of sure running out in, out in the Middle East. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. Which is, um, but as you say... Everything can go wrong, <laughs> conspires against you, and every day you're kind of chipping another bit off. Oh, we're not going to get that. We're not going to do that. Yeah, That's so not going to work. Yeah. You, you do hope that something yeah. comes yeah. out of it. And I, you know, and I've, I, I've been lucky that you know I've been involved in in some things that, that did go up. But you know, traditionally, when I've been writing for TV, I've done t- tiny film projects, nothing worth talking about. But for TV. You know, I've been lucky enough to be the producer as well, so mm. you have that control. Right. You can't blame anyone else, and you can and that's be the lovely, on top of the detail. That's mm. the lovely thing about writing novels, I find, is that, I mean, because, you know, having been a screenwriter on a film set, I'm the least important person there. Like, you know. Which is madness to me. Yeah. But it's I know that's the, the way it is, but I always... It's not like that in TV, but in, on films, you're very, yeah. very much so, and it's sort of painful a lot of the time because you will say, that's not going to work, don't do that, and they'll tell you to shut they up. change And it. then get you a, get a, you'll get a hysterical phone call from the director six months later in the editing room saying, oh my God, why did you let me do that? <laughs> like, well, you know. But, yeah. in, but when you're writing a book, you're, you're doing everything, you know, mm, you're doing yeah. it all, and it's lovely not to be rewritten without your, your permission. You don't, have, you don't have to worry about the budget or yeah. when yeah. you're going to get the sets built in time. Yes. Whether the actors will decide that they would like to play the character completely differently yeah. to how you've yes. written it. Yes, that happens so many times. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you're sort of the writer, director and producer when you're writing. You're everything, yeah. which, yeah. which again, you know, in the end, you, you have to take full responsibility for it. But yes, it's it, it it's expansive and you've got huge control and, and you've got the time and the space. Script writing is about condensing and mm-hmm. squashing it down and cutting it back and making it as tight as, as possible. It's a kind of opposite process I, I completely agree and a friend of mine's a critic and he said something i thought was so smart he said that film is about contraction whereas novels are about expansion mm. and that's one of the things i love about writing books is you can go backwards and forwards in time and you can go mm. into a character's head or you can go with them for a walk or whatever all the kind of thing that you can't really do in film you know yeah but do you do you enjoy that side of it as well do you enjoy i enjoy writing? being able to you know not just do one thing all the time and mm. to switch between them is, is fun i mean you know the older i get the the harder and more tiring than filming side of things is. Mm. But you can't get away from the fact that unless you have a huge bestseller, 
you do get paid a lot more in TV. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's good to know. Yeah. Uh, it's the same with audio, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I always ask my guests what they've been reading and enjoying recently. It's uh-huh. a chance to... Uh, well, it's a question I absolutely hate getting asked myself because I never have an answer, so I just put it on everyone else instead. But it's a chance uh, for you to just let us know a few books you might have picked up or authors you've discovered recently and give them a little shout-out. So I know you, Alex, have been... Over here for a week or so, and you're yeah. doing various events and running up and down. But have you have you had time to read anything? Um, I have, you know, I'm actually deep into uh, finishing my third book right now, and I don't uh, I don't tend to to read many writers when I'm writing because I'm just scared of like nicking ideas or, or bits of dialogue or whatever. Um, Do you read so, nonfiction or just nothing? I tend to not read when I'm writing. Mm. It's because you're staring at the screen all day and the last thing I want to do is then read something. But but having said that, there, there are you know a few books that I did read which I really enjoyed was um, Harriet Tice's newest um, It Ends at Midnight. Yep. I thought it was really great and compulsive. Um, and uh, Victoria Selman, uh, Truly Darkly Deeply, was a really good analysis of uh, a serial killer and a psychopath. And I don't know how to pronounce her name. It's just asking um, Emma this. Is it Katrona or Katrina Ward? I'm not sure. But she wrote Katrina Sundial. Katrina Ward. Is it Katrina? Yeah, I, think I so. thought she's a brilliant writer. And Sundial, I really recommend yeah. to everybody. Yeah. yeah, that's a fab three. And um, yeah. Harriet was on this series, actually, yes. a little earlier, yeah. talking about yeah. Ends at Midnight. And I like Harriet a lot. She's fab. And that book is brilliant. I mean, I've just yeah. raced through that one. What about you, Charlie? You've been reading and enjoying anything yeah, recently? Yeah, I've... Um, Comes and goes with reading. I, a, a, a few years back, I decided to keep a reading diary. Well, it's a list. I don't. I don't yeah. Because, like you, I was always being asked, "Well, what have you read this year? You enjoyed?" I think, "Oh God, I'm sure I read something, but I can't remember." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I've been I've been writing them down just as an aid memoir, and I, I seem to average thirty two books a year. Okay, that's pretty um, good, isn't it? It's not bad. I mean, you know, some people some people read like a book a week. Oh, I know, but I mean, you but, know, that, I think 30, um, 32 books is pretty good. Yeah, I'm quite impressed with that, I have to say. Yeah. Well, I, I have been, because, you know, I have been through periods of, of hardly reading anything. I, I read quite a lot when I'm writing because I like to nick things. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, even having written lots of books, you still get stuck. You think, well, how do I do that? Yeah. How do I get this person to do this and for the reader to understand what's happening? So, so you know, I, I, I'll read around the sort of, you know, if I'm writing a book with lots of action sequences, I will read how other people do action sequences and things. Um, what have I read recently? Well, you know, um, we, uh, Joe, we met up at the uh, Chipping Norton Literary Festival. We did indeed. List, where yes. I met... Um, Mick Heron. Yes. The first time. It was a lovely guy. And I'd, I'd only read the first of his books, Slow Horses, before. Uh, and, of course, the TV series has, has done so well. Mm. And meeting him, he was a lovely guy. Uh, so I thought, you know, I'm going to carry on reading. And, I, and I'm really, I'm reading the second one now, and, and I'm really loving it. I think he's got a, a great, great style. He does. I completely agree. Love. It's quite unique, isn't it, what he does? Yeah, well, it's funny. It's sort of taking elements of... Le Carré, the sort of writing about those kind of complicated losers. Mm, yeah. Um, but pushing it more into the sort of uh, slightly outrageous comedy area. I mean, not that it, they're not that they're comedy books. So, yes, I've really loved them. And uh, before that, I was read. I read um, a couple of Mo Hader books because, well, she, as you know, she died, and I thought, mm. and there were all these people writing about it. And she was such a fascinating character. I thought I'd better read some of that. Not least the fact that she started out playing 
Dolly Birds on TV. She was the assistant in the, to old Mr. Grace in Are You Being Served? Was she? Yes. You look her up on YouTube. Mo Hader. Yes. I there didn't she know is coming that. in. <laughs> wow. And and you know she was a glamour model. She was all sorts of things in her oh, early days. Wow. And 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 under a different name and sort of put a wall up and then became you know a really strong writer. Yeah. I mean and revered and. Uh, but my God, they're quite uh, heavy, <laughs> violent, and dark. Yeah. Uh, so I can't read too many of them in one go. No, not back to back. But anyway, then I also it? read because, um, as I say, I was filming this thing in the Middle East, and it's filming out in the desert. And I went out with my, I took my eldest son out, who's a, he's a filmmaker, was interested to see the process. Um, and he's re, he's really into this uh, Instagram site that it, that is. It, but photographs of directors, okay, showing us what they look like and what they used to wear. Okay, because most of them we don't know. And he shared with me this amazing picture of John Ford, oh, yeah. uh, directing Cheyenne Autumn in the desert when the, he was quite old. The, the eye patch, the eye patch, yeah, the slouch hat, this ratty old jumper, <laughs> and the meanest, nastiest, coldest expression to the camera. Uh, and I just thought I've got to read more about John Ford. I mean, he was a really interesting character. I mean, mm. completely unpleasant in many ways, but 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 fascinating. There's this huge book about him, the author of which I can't remember, which I, sh- which I should do. But um, fantastic uh, biography of him. I, th- I I absolutely love reading biographies now I never used to you know five years ago I didn't really I wasn't that interested now I absolutely love reading them um because they the, the ones that are done so well and in fact on this very podcast quite in an, in an early series uh David Hepworth was a guest and his book of choice was um the years of Lyndon B Johnson um which are like four four huge volumes about Lyndon B Johnson and I just thought <laughs> No, thank you. Yeah. And then he he sold it to me so well in the book. I literally went out and bought the first volume. Oh my good! And it's unbelievable. It's not an auto- It's not a biography of Lyndon B. Johnson. It's like a history of America. Yeah. You know, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And the same with things like I imagine that biography of John Ford. It's like yes, of course, it's about John Ford's life, but but it's also about the well, entertainment to- industry yeah, and the I culture mean, and a total history of Hollywood. I mean, he, he started making films during the First World War. Yeah, as an actor and a stuntman, and his brother was a quite a famous director at the time, and he worked for him. Yeah, and then went through that whole Hollywood system, and then went when it was all changing, and he was kind of young guys were coming up saying, "Who's who's John Ford?" <laughs> Um, and dealing with all that, it, yeah, no, it, it, it's really interesting. I, I've just looked it up. It's called "Searching for John Ford" by Joseph McBride. Brilliant, um, and it's it it is a fascinating read. Fantastic, some great recommendations there. Mm. And Alex, as a as a sort of uh, obviously a fan of cinema, and you you studied, uh, you went to film school, didn't you? Yeah. Are you sort of interested in? those old Hollywood biographies as well, even though you're not maybe going back to screenwriting? Yeah, I mean, I, t- I tend to you fixate on the same kind of people. Um, so um, Biddy Wilder mm, is, okay. is what yeah, I try yeah, to yeah. focus on, and Hitchcock mainly right. are my favourites. But they were obviously huge fans of Ford. And so, yes. yeah, I Have don't you, know very much about Ford. I've seen Stagecoach. Well, I didn't really ago. know much about him as a man. Right. You know, I mean, obviously knew that great legacy of his and had seen a lot of the films. And, mm. uh, I did uh, a minor in film studies at... at a university. Oh, one, right. of the, one of the things I did on that was westerns, so we kind of mm. watched a lot of his films. But I knew very little about him as a man and what he was like to work with. There's a um, a, a really 
good book I enjoyed quite recently, or in fact, towards the beginning of the old lockdown when I just I couldn't read fiction, uh, and it was called Chinatown and the End of Hollywood's Golden Age or something. Mm. Uh, again, I'm going to have to look it up now, Charlie, because I can't yeah. remember who wrote it. Um, but it's it's not. It is about China. It's basically about the making of Chinatown, and it's a sort of a bit a, a bit about Polanski, obviously, and everything and everything that happened there. But but it's also so much more than that because it's about who was coming in and out of the houses and the parties and what and little side projects that they were mm-hmm. doing, you know, that then turn out to be these incredible influential films that we saw in the seventies. And I just sort of love luxuriating all of that. I'll, I'll look it up and find out who it is mm. in the moment. Um, but that might be one. Yeah, I might enjoy that. Have, actually. You, have you read the uh, Jonathan Coe book, the Billy Wilder one that he did? No. It's 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 well worth reading. It's it's fiction, but um, oh, you, you mean um, uh, Mr. Wilder and yes, me? Yes. yes. No, I've not read it yet. And uh, no, yeah. it's 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 a really. It's going to be a movie now with um, Christoph Waltz playing. Um, really playing Wilder, yeah. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's yeah. oh no, because I mean that's really yeah. fascinating. Because I mean Jonathan Coe obviously yeah. loves Billy Wilder. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Have you seen Fedora, the film that it's? Uh, I have. I remember going to see it when it came out. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, and being quite non-plastic. It's, yeah, totally. <laughs> Why would I mean, somebody I've, make I've this seen film? I've <laughs> seen it a couple of times. I just don't, you know, it's so funny. How and, it just, well, the book, the book, although it's fiction, it kind of explains how that film ended up right. existing and why it didn't really work. Yeah, yeah. Fedora, the one on the island. That's uh, right. We're, yes. we're, and the it's it kind of like a, that old house. Yeah, it's like a it's, bad remake of Sunset Boulevard. Now, I, I yes. quite liked it. Did you? Yeah. Is that... Okay. Is that no, I... It's insane that you will grow. Oh, it's, uh, I will uh, agree. It's insane, but I was also quite um, hypnotized by it. I suppose mm, in some way, I sort mm. of, I saw it at the BFI, which is what, um, and it was part of a wilder season. Mm. And I just thought, I mean, oh, well, it, I've never it, seen that. It's one. A, it's a film out of time, really. That yeah you know, shouldn't have been made when it when it was. It's so funny here. I mean, I'm obsessed with Billy Wilder, and it's so interesting how he just. He, he, it's kind of it's horrifying in a way because he just lost his ability he lost his audience somehow and he just lost his ability to connect with people and you think how when you, when you had your finger on the pulse for so so, so many, long yeah. so many years yeah, yeah, suddenly yeah. Started... he got old <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's why the, you know the biography of any film director who lived long enough it gets depressing at the end yeah. they, they you know the John Ford is the same he, he just was a man out of time and nobody made films like in a rational jumper yeah. or even just stuff like you know talking about you know documentaries that give it a sense of the whole period is i just watched the um the andy warhol documentary on netflix mm. which is all very much about the art scene in the 80s and stuff like that too but even him towards the end of his career he was just saying things like if only i'd stuck just doing soup cans i'd still be I'd still be a hit i should have done soup cans and it's so sad to hear someone say that you know you just think but didn't he also say when uh, asked about the guy who threw himself out of the factory window uh, about what he thought about his him just being on drugs and falling to his death he said i wish i'd been there to film it <laughs> that's one of the things that came from that document. Oh, yeah. 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 Wonder why nobody, with me wonder why nobody said to him you know a guy said something very interesting once andy we all have 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i wonder if anyone ever did um that book by the way as tom through the glass has just told me very kindly it's called the big goodbye it's by sam oh. wasson oh, okay the big oh, the goodbye the big goodbye uh, yeah I, I recommend that one right then it's time now for the book off which is where each of you is going to give us another book recommendation in fact you're going to have three minutes uninterrupted to do so if you wish to have those three minutes you don't have to use them all but uh when you get to that three minutes, if you're still talking, I'm either going to ring you out with the school bell or I'm going to honk you out with the horn. 
Who has travelled the fur? You've travelled the furthest, Alex, haven't you? Con- considering you don't actually live in this country, so, I pretend so. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah. Uh, you get to choose whether you go first or second. Do you mind if I go first, just to get it over with? Is that <laughs> That's right? fine. That's fine. Uh, and that means you, Charlie, get to uh, choose whether you have the uh, bell or the horn. <laughs> it's going to be both, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he wants the double. I haven't, had, I haven't had time to make it short enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Uh, you, you'll get both then. Both of you will get both. How about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, just before we start the time on your one, Alex, tell us the book that you're putting forward, please. Uh, I am doing um, A Judgment and Stone by Ruth Randall. Fantastic. Alrighty then, it's three minutes uninterrupted. Over to you, if you want them, to tell us about, don't be nervous, A Judgment in Stone. Off you go. Okay, um, I love this book. Um, I don't think I could have written my first novel, The Silent Potion, without it, for all kinds of reasons. Um, It's uh, about a a kind of petty blackmailer and murderer called Eunice Parchment, who um, can't read or write and is taken into a kind of upper middle class family as their housekeeper and is determined to keep her literacy a secret from them. But they keep, because they're a very literate kind of family, they keep kind of pushing her to a place where her, the fact that she can't read or write is discovered. And um, she then kind of descends into madness and she kills them. And that's like, you know, great Ruth Rendell territory. Um, what elevates it and makes it into a really spectacular novel is the narrative voice, which keeps intruding um, on the story and commenting on the characters. And it, it starts with the, the very famous opening line, um, which is um, Eunice Parchman killed the Coverdale family because she could not read or write. Um, that's just so amazing because, you know, she gives away the end of the book at the beginning. Um, and so not only did she kind of elevate it into a, a tra- tragic kind of sphere, um, it's also incredible because it's so audacious and you just think, how the hell is she going to match that? Well, where does the story go now? She told us the end. Um, and so there's something about knowing the end of the beginning and the fact that she keeps commenting on the characters. Um, it, it sort of, it becomes a kind of really haunting story of a descent into madness and a march towards death. And, and she keeps highlighting all the things the characters could have done differently to avoid their fate, and yet they don't. And so you you read it with an increasing sense of anxiety and, and you know unease. Um, and uh, I just I think I've learned so much from that book. I've read it you know hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, and I took the the first line from the Silent Patient. It was kind of a homage to that, which was Alicia Burrison killed her husband when she was thirty three years old. Because I just thought it's a really fun way to start a, a detective story. You say who done it, um, and then kind of explore that. Um, and so, you know, Ruth Rendell for me is kind of like I've graduated from Christie to Ruth Rendell, yeah. I think. She's just a most sophisticated, brilliant writer ever. Fantastic. Oh, well, you didn't need the three minutes no, at no. all. I'm glad I that. made two minutes. I'm quite nice impressed Nice and with that, succinct actually. there with uh, can two I Can I have a spare second? <laughs> 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 oh, we've never had a, tra- we've never had a trade-off before. Yeah, I'm not sure very that's allowed. <laughs> Don't be too nice. Don't be too nice. Um, that was brilliant. We'll come back and talk about Ruth uh, in, in just a moment. Have a rest. Have a breather. Have some more water. Three minutes back on the clock for you, Charlie. And just before we start it, what book are you putting forward? Uh, I'm going with From the City, From the Plough by Alexander Barron. Fantastic. All right, then. Three minutes on the clock. Over to you. OK. Uh, Alexander Barron was a really interesting writer. He was the son of uh, Jewish immigrant parents who grew up in Hackney in the East End. Um, he was a communist in the 30s, like most bright young men were. Uh, became disillusioned with the left in the Spanish Civil War and then fought in the Second World War. For two very violent campaigns in Sicily and he was involved in the D-Day landings and fighting up through Europe. 
And um, after the war, he wrote several uh, novels about the war, but he also wrote quite a lot of crime books about the East End and became a screenwriter in the UK and Hollywood and eventually ended up doing a lot of work for the BBC with uh, things like Play for Today and Poldark and Sherlock Holmes and Dickens' adaptation. He was a very strong, reliable writer. Um, from the City, From the Plough was published in 1948 and it's about a group of um, soldiers, uh, junior officers and, and you know, enlisted men getting ready, although they don't know it, to... Uh, for the D-Day for the D-Day landings, and it's a the the bulk of the book is about the sort of mundanity of what it was like for a soldier at the time, and the, the, the fascinating details. You know, the, the fact that many of the uh, the soldiers they would desert regularly. They'd uh, go off to Soho, do a bit of gambling, join themselves, sorting out family problems, and then when they'd run out of money, they'd just go back to the army and be locked up for a few days and carry on because the army needed particularly at this time, all the soldiers it could get. And that whole, the whole sort of process of getting them ready and, and, and pushing them through to, to, for the campaign, there's a really interesting section where they're all on the Isle of Wight and just the amount of time it took to load thousands of men onto boats and then they were sitting on the boats. And what it brought home to me was that for most people in the, U, in the, in the UK, life was going on as normal. And so there's all these people, holidaymakers in the Isle of Wight, who are really pissed off that all these kind of drunken squaddies have taken over the island. And, it, you know, it reminds you that, that, you know, the blitz was over, life was carrying on. But for these young men, they're not professional soldiers by this time in the war. And it, and it follows them through, it follows a whole group of them. And then it goes into the carnage of, of, of D-Day and, and particularly the, the, the period after that where they're just driven on and on and on to keep keep fighting and keep pushing forward and the dehumanizing aspect of that is that you know you would think the officers would say well you know you've done your bit take a rest it's like no you carry on until there's none of you left and then we'll put the next wave through and it's it's a very moving bit but 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 completely unsentimental um you do get involved with all these characters and you know some of them are nuts and some of them are quite nasty but they're just ordinary young men well, <laughs> I, I know you had more to say there, but you brought I it in. I a bit where the aliens land. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that incredibly like actorly way that you just finished that off anyway, knowing that the time was up. That was brilliant. Wow. Um, two very different books and hmm. two fabulous pictures. Uh, I love the sound of both of these. I haven't read either of them, actually. In oh. fact, I'm probably woefully underread in general, but also with Ruth Rendell. Um, she's not someone I've I've actually read any, possibly anything of actually oh, it's her best novel I, I really recommend yeah I mean it sounds fab and I know that she I, I, to, just to age me a little bit I remember watching telly as a kid and it often being based on the novel by Ruth Rendell do you know yeah. what I mean like that used to come yeah. up a lot on those well, what she did often you know was, was write these procedurals and I, you know I've read pretty much everything she's written now and I can often find them a bit thin and hard to get through sometimes uh -huh. and they haven't aged well but the ones where she is narrating it you know where her yeah. she allows yeah. her personality to kind of evade the novel like like a judgment stone they're so powerful because she's so funny and so acidic Mm. And so they're, they're kind of elevated to a whole new so level. That, so that that wasn't a Barbara Vine. It wasn't a Barbara Vine, but it could have been. It was a long time before she started writing Barbara right. Vine, but okay. it should have been a Barbara Vine. It's right, that, yes. that okay. vibe definitely. Because yeah. I've I definitely preferred the Barbara Vine side of her writing, which that sounded completely like. Me too. Me too. Like I... Getting into again, it's get, what we were talking about earlier, getting inside a, 
a mind. A head, yeah. And exactly that. that the, the character in the book, obviously to herself, the only way she could sort out a situation, the logical thing to do, to kill these people. <laughs> yes, and then and then make a cup of tea. Yes, it's, that's what she does, and that's my favorite bit in the book. Yeah. It's just brilliant. Oh, yeah. but yeah. I lo- I also love that. Obviously, this it means a lot to you in the sense that you say you know you you possibly couldn't have written that debut yeah. novel without it. The audacity of that giving away the whole plot in the first line, and which possibly at that t- you know probably wasn't a thing that people did really, and then making you. Go okay, right. Well, you've sort of told me, but I want to keep reading. Yeah. I just think it's brilliant. It's it's really incredible. It sounds it sounds fascinating, um, as does from the city from the plow. Uh, again, I I don't think I knew of Alexander Barron. Maybe I well, sh- I maybe mean, I the, should book, have. Uh, the book has been in print ever since. It was a big bestseller wow. at the okay. time, and and what's interesting about it is it feels incredibly modern when you read it. Mm. It feels like a book that's written by someone as a sort of revisionist look at. What it was like, but no, that was exactly how it was. And at the time, nobody was saying, "Oh, you know, he's making a point," or "This is what it was right. like." It was like, "Yes, this is what it was, was like." And and I'm sure Steven Spielberg must have read it before he met, uh, when he was researching Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Not so much for the actual landings bit, but for that whole thing of pushing on afterwards. Oh, after and, it, and, yeah. And, you know, the the Tom Hanks character feels very similar to a couple of the characters in the book. These guys who have come from a fairly ordinary background, but now they're in a position where they're looking after men mm. and, you know, you can see he's very sort of psychologically damaged, but he just has to keep going. Well, there's a, f- there's a few things that s- stuck out for me from, from that wonderful pitch. One is how it's moving, but, but unsentimental, you know, mm. just that idea of it. Yes, you are moved by it, but at the same time, it's just like, hey, this is what happened, you know. Mm. But then this idea that, like, like you say, life was, life was going on people a little bit annoyed holiday makers annoyed yeah. at this drunkenness whereas it's it, it, it it's all these men young men were being pushed to basically being as you said like dehumanized and then move it on you know oh. and it's like god mm. that really just even hearing you say that makes me think goodness me and then you know i imagine actually reading it and from that time yeah. as well it's and, uh, and and the other really interesting about the book is is despite the fact that he was um you know he'd been a communist he was still pretty left-wing mm. and he was jewish there's virtually nothing about the germans in the book there's no sense of we're going to go and kill these evil no. bastards they are no. the enemy it's just like we're a bunch of young men we're, we're going over there we're going to do what we're told yeah there's no feeling of well, i really want to kill them if they ever thought about it because i were talking to my father-in-law who, who went through the d-day thing you know he said you very rarely saw the enemy you tried not to kill any of them and when you saw the dead bodies, you just thought, well, they look like young men, exactly like us. I hope it wasn't my bullet that killed him, kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. God. It's just... I mean, it's, yeah, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And um, also, for, for me personally, I I am, I don't know if I've read enough and watched enough about, you know, the, the wars and about yeah those. I mean I'm you know I'm not a, I'm not one of those sort of Second World War buff who no me neither tank document no 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 things. but even I, just I, in I general of an it. a friend recommended it and you know it's one of those books I just just sort of recommend to everyone mm. well uh, they're both fabulous sounding books both brilliant pictures. <sighs> gosh um, how do you decide they couldn't be more different they couldn't be more different yeah. could they really well. It's a good question, really. I mean, let's not pick apart the whole, uh, you know, idea <laughs> of the podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm, ge- I'm going to take the Alexander Baron. Hey. I'm going to take the Alexander Baron, 
because I feel like I need to know more about it and I feel like this is the book that would tell me and teach me quite a bit. Having said that, um, I've got to read... Well, maybe I don't have to read so much Ruth Rendell, but I need to read this one. No, no, honestly, the the, the, the non-police ones are, are great. Okay. Really yeah. interesting books. So I'm going to start with A Judgment in Stone, I yeah, think, because I, I think thought love it. that was a great pitch. And I might have to get you to write down a few others yeah. that I should uh, follow that up with as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, of course, Barbara Vine. Yes. Barbara Vine as yeah. well. Um, thank you for those brilliant pictures and recommendations. And here's two others for you. Whatever Gets You Through the Night by Charlie Higson, which is out now and it's published by Little Brown. And The Maidens by Alex Michaelides. It's also out now and it's published by Orion. And they're both fabulous, as are you two. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the recommendations. Uh, and it's been lovely spending this time with you. Yeah, thank you too. Yeah, it's been great. a lot of fun. Thank Cheers. you. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 